Hey, lady, how you doing? <laughs> Hello, gorgeous, with your sexy, smoldering, <laughs> sick voice. I love it. You know, I don't know if this is uh, round two of what I had last week or if, like, it wrote in, like, a plus one to the party that was definitely not invited, <laughs> and that's what this is. I'm going to need to see your invitation because I don't yeah. see you on the list. Thanks. You did not have a plus one, ma'am? No. Ma'am. No. <laughs> Call no. security. Get this bitch out of here. No. Yeah. So this is just kind of my life now, I guess. Uh, I just have like the black lung or some shit. <laughs> the weather is not helping. We had our first snow this week and I looked out the window a minute ago and it was starting to snow again. So I did appreciate it, though, because I believe we went New York City went over 700 days without an inch of snow. I don't even Damn. think it hit an inch of snow for 700 days for two years. So I was happy to see it. I kind of was too. It was nice. Also, as a homebody, like that's my jam because I'm like, no, I can't go out. It's snowing. Like it's it's cold. It, I could slip. I'm very accident prone. Like I just want to look at it through my window. Literally same, except that I had to be out for the snow situation working. Yes. Yes, of course. My heart goes out to you. I'm I'm so proud of you for doing that. <laughs> I just want, I need to say that for the record because I definitely stayed inside for four days. It's not a valiant thing. It's me like needing to pay for shit. Like I would have much preferred to stay at home. It's kind of nice. Again, as a homebody, I, I'm not mad about it. I'm just like, that's the perfect excuse. And we're Florida girls. Yeah. It's never going to lose its, its novelty. Yes. It's very true. I can remember the first time I ever saw snow. We went to visit my mom's best friend in Chicago and I was absolutely losing my mind. And I wanted to go outside and build a snowman. And she had kids that were a little younger than me, but still close in age. And I was like, do you guys want to go outside and build a snowman and like have a snowball fight? And they're like, no, it's fucking cold. Like, why would we want to do that? <laughs> Especially in Chicago. Fuck. Yeah. <laughs> so I literally went outside by myself and just like built a snowman and played in the snow. And I was like, I don't care. This is new to me. This is exciting. I'm fucking. That's my life story about everything. I'd be like, does anyone want to go see the new Dahmer movie with me? No? Okay. I'll do <laughs> okay. that by myself. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Uh, it also still cracks me up the first time I ever had to shovel my car out of snow. Yeah. I moved to New Hampshire and they had the worst winter they'd had in 20 years or something crazy. And I came out to find Mini Cooper almost completely covered Buried. in snow. There were like yeah. three feet of snow. And I wore a million layers because I'm like, it's freezing outside. I'm going to be so cold. And then literally three Sweating minutes later, I was, in a, yeah, I was in a t-shirt and leggings. And I was like, I'm dying right now. Yeah. My first winter when I went to college in Long Island. On Long Island, Monique. They're going to yell at that's you. That's right. I'm sorry. On Long Island. They're going to yell at you. They get very upset about that. Yeah. You know, I know. I'm sorry. On <laughs> Long Island. I should have known better. <laughs> it cracks me up to this day, though. Yeah. They're going to die on this hill. Yes, there's many a hill they'll die on, and that's one of them. Yeah, it was like four feet of snow, like three or four feet of snow. Holy fuck. Like months into me going to school there. And I mean, it was awesome, obviously, because I'm like, oh, fuck, this is cool. And I remember telling my parents, and they bought me these like moon landing snow boots, basically, like these atrocious, huge things. <laughs> I know exactly which ones you're talking about. Yeah, that I've used. That was in 2003. I've used them maybe five times in that time. In those 20 years. I believe it. Before I moved to New Hampshire, my grandmother bought me an electric blanket, which 
is amazing for the record. Never had one. But my grandmother lives in Florida, so she called around to like a million, you know, stores, Costco's, whatever, and she had to preface every conversation with, I know this sounds insane and it's literally 85 degrees outside, but do you have an electric blanket? (laughs) She found one though. There you go. Bought it for me and that was, I used that thing every single night. It was amazing. Clutch as fuck. I actually had forgotten about it. I might have to invest in another one. Yes. It's so good. Amazing. I love it. What else have you been up to this week? I guess a bit of an eventful week. It was uh, my honey's birthday, so we we celebrated that a ton. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. <laughs> I keep getting sick, so that's that's been fun. And I did watch the documentary that you recommended. Hell Camp? Yes. What do you think of it? What the fuck? What it's the all of it. fuck, dude? What the fuck? And it just ugh, something that I think people have a hard time acknowledging because it's horrible, but doesn't remain less true. There are people who are really bad parents. Yeah. And don't love their kids and like wanted to have a baby because that's what you did, but actually had no interest in like rearing a child and what comes with that. And then, so the thing of like, well, you're a bad kid, you know, and we're we're up to our ears with your whatever the fuck. Maybe you should have just been a fucking parent, giving a fuck about your kid, and then this shit wouldn't have been necessary. And all it did was just breed more bad will in the relationship because these kids are like, my parents are the ones who did this to me. Yeah. They don't fucking love me. No. They paid someone to... I want to say fake kidnapping, but not really because the kids didn't know. So it was real kidnapping. Like, how could you ever trust that person again? $16,000 in 1980s money. It's a lot of fucking money. That's a lot of fucking money now. Yeah. To permanently scar your child. Regardless of even making it to the camp, literally the just being kidnapped from your bed at 3 a.m. I'd be like, fuck my parents. I'm never fucking doing anything you say again. I'm never going to be a good kid for you. Fuck you for doing this to me. Yeah, I would have like run the fuck out. Because then also like, what's the justification? Like they bring it up in the documentary. It's like no cop is going to believe you. Yeah, no. You're like, my parents paid to have someone kidnap me and then abuse me. They're going to be like, okay, sure, Jan. Why the fuck would they believe you? But the thing is, there are parents who don't love their children. And they're just you know, biological parents. And that's kind of it. Yeah. And people have a really hard time accepting that, but it's fucking true. It is very sad and it sucks, but yeah. And not everyone should be a parent. Yeah. I think a lot of people should be parents. Just like I think most of the people who are married should be married to each other. Very true. And I'm a total romantic to a crippling fault. I promise you. (laughs) Um, Just talk to anyone who knows me. I believe in, you know, love and the one in marriage and the whole bit. But I think a lot of people get tired of waiting and they settle. Yep. It's very true. Yeah. Uh, that was, it was great. It was like really good. It was really well done, but awful. And I am halfway through another documentary that's <laughs> fucking terrible. It's really well done, but it's just the subject matter is terrible. And it's about this family and this girl who has this rare disorder where basically like how when you get like an injury you know like after a couple weeks it like heals and scars over whatever but the disorder that she has it just the pain gets worse 
through time that it's crippling. And then like, even just like the lightest touch is like agonizing. Fuck. Yeah. And it's like a, a neurological disorder. And there's very, very few doctors who treat this and how they treat it is using ketamine. <gasps> and I saw the preview for this. This is horrifying. It looked so heartbreaking. It's so awful. It's so awful. So basically, these parents, they do everything for their daughter. They undergo these like um, treatments and like she ends up getting better, like significantly better. And then she has a relapse and they take her to the emergency room. And then the doctors decide that because of the dosage of ketamine that this girl is on, that she's a victim of medical child abuse, aka Munchausen's by proxy. And the state takes her away from her parents. It's fucking horrible. And then the mother is a nurse who, like, she came from communist Poland. She, like, put herself through school. She was like, no nonsense. She's like, I'm going to fucking make my life happen. And she's like, not here for your bullshit. So she's telling the doctors, like, do this and this and this. This is what she needs. And they're like, fuck you. You're just some mom. And she's like, this is my fucking daughter. And I know what she needs. And she's going to fucking die. So and then I guess because they felt some type of way about being told what to do by a fucking woman, they took away this girl from her family and where the mother was not allowed to have any contact with her. And even though the doctor wrote to the hospital like service worker to be like, this is the deal. And the service worker just didn't put that doctor's note in her report. So fucked. Yeah. I've only seen the trailer for it, but the trailer was heartbreaking. Like she it's calls horrible. constantly to try to check on her daughter. She just cares and loves her daughter so much. And it's so apparent. <sighs> and her doctor is literally like, if she doesn't continue these treatments, the pain will become crippling and your daughter will die. Yeah. What are you supposed to do when your daughter's doctor who has helped her tells you that? And then you're told, no, you can't tell, you can't talk to the doctors and tell them what your daughter needs. It's literally life or death. And they're like, shut up, you stupid woman. How dare you tell us what to do? So fucked up. Remind me what this is called. Take care of Maya. <sighs> yes. I was very intrigued by it, but it was one of those where I was like, I don't know that I'm in a place emotionally to watch this right now. This seems like gut-wrenching. I can't. For sure. I'm only halfway through, but it's, it's horrible so heartbreaking and you see this and you're like how the fuck did Dee, Dee blanchard get away yeah for like years and years putting her daughter through all these like getting a fucking feeding tube put in and like her fucking glands and shit taken out she was able to do that and then this one chick this one girl is on medication and they're like this is munchausen's by proxy what the fuck it's insane also there are ketamine clinics now and they've done studies where it's helps treat yeah. depression and anxiety yep. and it has medical uses yep also takes place in our home state of florida okay i'm not surprised in any way shape or form anymore yeah and one of the doctors who's like being deposed because they show like deposition footage who's like talking about like the mother's attitude and that she's very like belligerent whatever the fuck yeah her last name is sanchez and i'm like how fucking dare you besmirch my good name you piece of shit fuck you right also Yes, you're keeping me from my child and ignoring the thing I'm telling you she needs to keep her alive. Yeah, I'm a little belligerent. Yeah. I think that's a perfectly reasonable response. Thanks. And they just like lied on their – it's, it's, it's fucking nuts. It's fucking crazy. Florida, you're trash. 
I mean, you know, love you, but get it together, girl. <laughs> oh my God. That's too real. All right. I got to check that out. I'm in a more emotionally stable place to check that out now. Yeah. Like I said, I'm only halfway through. It's really well done and it's really uh, enraging and infuriating. As most true crime documentaries are. You know, I mean, that's the gig, right? That's the gig. Is this a series or is this just a... It's a one-off. Okay. It's just a movie. Yep. What about you? Nothing too exciting. I cleaned and reorganized my office, which is very nice. I got a new office chair, which is one of those crisscross chairs that you can sit cross-legged on. (gasps) Yes! Which, if you've been on the internet recently, is fucking everywhere and in probably a lot of your targeted ads, as it was mine. Uh, And they got me. I was like, sold. I have not seen this. I love it. I'm obsessed with it. My one complaint is that I didn't realize it doesn't have wheels, which if you Mm. have just a straight desk is fine, but I have an L-shaped desk, so I literally have to like climb in and out of it like a fucking spider (laughs) monkey. It's, yeah. Is it a very big chair? It's extra wide. It's very nice. And it's pink. Okay. I love that. Obsessed. But yeah, I love it. I'm obsessed with it. I don't give a fuck that it doesn't have wheels. I'm in. I love it. Fantastic. Yeah. And then I hung up all of my cross stitches and stuff finally. So above my desk is my cross stitch from Haley that says Psychic Sisters. And I hung it with like a nice pretty black bow and it looks really cute. Now I get to think of her and you every time I look at it. I love it. In my studio, I have, um, because I have like a mini recording studio that I made in my apartment, in my spacious Manhattan (laughs) apartment. (laughs) And uh, in it, I, I do have the fingers and the eyes cross stitch that Haley made that's hanging up right there. It's I a lot love of fun. It. Yeah. It's so nice. Yeah. So that's my big exciting week. I took Boo to the vet this week and he and has doubled in weight. Yes. He gained two pounds. He was only two pounds when I first brought him and he's doing great. He was not afraid of the vet when I first took him there. And I think because he was so out of it or traumatized from everything and when I took him there this time he was like what is going on and looked at me with like the panicked eyes the whole time we were in the waiting room and I was like oh buddy it's gonna be okay I swear you're coming home with me everything's fine yeah my cat hated going to the vet and like we didn't realize that like the carrier needs to kind of be incorporated into like everyday life yeah they need to be able to like see it and check it out when it's not a we're going right now and the carrier's coming out situation. Yeah. So we would do that. And then my cat knew, fuck, this means I'm going to the fucking vet. And he would freak out in the car. And the The only way he'd calm down is with the uh, dulcet tones of Beyonce. True fucking story. (laughs) I get it. I mean, it calms me right down Uh, Who among us? Right? Who among us? Same. Man and beast alike. Beyonce speaks to all of us. That's amazing. Yeah. She's like the cat whisperer. (laughs) I love that. Oh, man. So, yeah, that was my my big exciting week. Got the cat vaccinated, cleaned my office, new office chair. Thrilling. I know, guys, on the edge of your seats. (laughs) This is called being a grown up. It's... It's the worst. Why did why did I get roped into this? I hate adulting. It's annoying the things you get excited about when you're old. Oh my god. Like I got really excited cuz I found a cleaner 
that would take off the soap scum from my shower door. And I was like, <gasps> and I was like, who am I? This is disgusting. <laughs> I totally get it. This is the air fryer all over again. When I was like, where has this been my whole life? And then I was like, oh my God. And on that thrilling note, are you ready to get into yeah, girl. our paranormal story this week? I was fucking born ready, girl. Let's go. Yes. I love it. So in light of your Twilight Zone theme, I tried to pick uh -huh. something that was kind of along those lines for you. So you oh my God. have your Twilight Zone fix a little bit. I love you so much. I love you. I don't know if this is 100% going to count, but it felt right to me. I'm counting it. I'm counting it right now. So, Sources, Monsters and Mysteries in America, Season 3, Episode 9, which yeah. is the first time I watched the show and is not the worst paranormal show I've seen. It's definitely no paranormal witness, but... I mean, what is? Nothing is. That's my favorite. It's so good. Top tier. The reenactments aren't too bad. The CGI is pretty terrible, but it did make me laugh out loud a couple times, so <laughs> kind of here for the bad CGI. Yeah. This story did not have CGI, though, so I could take it semi-seriously. And it okay. is one of those just, like, interviews interspliced with reenactments type of situation. So this story takes place in April 2003, just outside Orlando, Florida, in Oviedo, which I grew up pronouncing Oviedo, but the show pronounced it as Oviedo, which I know is how you pronounce the city in Spain that it's named after. So now I have no idea how it's actually pronounced. Do you know this town? How would you say it? No, I don't. Okay. But since you were close to it, yes, you my probably lived. know what it was pronounced, how it was pronounced. Not some fucking voiceover actor. Narrator. <laughs> so that's how I'm pronouncing it. If you're from Florida and that's incorrect and you say it properly in the Spanish way. Let everybody know. Yeah. It was a morning just like any other for the Leggett family. 17-year-old Jantana who everyone called Tana, fortunately, because her name is spelled... Because <laughs> you're like, I can't do this. The next. I can't do this. One, two, it's spelled J-Z-O-N-T-A-N-N-A, -N -N -A, which is a Florida name if I ever heard one. And I, I'm here for it. No <laughs> tea, no shade. But yes. So Tana and her younger sister, Jordan, were busy getting ready for school while their mother, Kim, made coffee in the kitchen. From the reenactment, it seems like the girls, who were close in age, had your typical sibling relationship, bickering over borrowing the other's things and just generally annoyed at the other's presence. By 8 a.m. that morning, both girls had gotten on the bus and left for school. And Kim, wanting to enjoy a moment of peace and quiet now that they were gone, sat down with her coffee to watch her morning TV shows. Not long after, though, Kim saw Tana walk by. She was holding a towel, had another wrapped around her head, and was walking toward the bathroom seemingly still getting ready for school. Kim was surprised to see her daughter still at home since the girls should have already left and she thought they'd both made the bus that morning. She began to chastise her for missing the bus and got up to follow her to the bathroom. I love this. Monique's already excited. Hands in the air. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Doppelganger motherfucker. I love this shit. I love this shit. I love this shit. She knew immediately. Ah, I love it. But when she opened the door, Tana wasn't there. Kim was confused. She knew that she'd seen Tana in the house, but now she was nowhere to be found and there were no outside doors in that part of the house, so there was no way that she could have slipped outside and suddenly disappeared. After the girls came home from school, Kim confronted Tana about missing the bus. 
but she had no idea what her mom was talking about and insisted that she'd left for school that morning at the same time as her sister. When Kim looked to Jordan for confirmation, she too insisted that Tana had been on the bus that morning with her. And Kim believed them. Even if Jordan had been lying to cover for Tana, she knew the school would have called if Tana had missed any classes, and there had been no call that day. Which, if you were like me, totally been there, you would like rush home to like make sure you were the one there to fucking get the call because it was an yeah. automated thing. And you'd be like, yep, uh, miss school. Thank you. Click. And then no one was the wiser. I don't know that that was a thing that was done at my school. Oh, really? Well, you went to private Catholic school. I went to yeah. public school, which might be a, more of a public school thing. Yeah, that's what I think, think the situation is. And like also my mom dropped us off. So like this, yeah. If one of us wasn't with her, we, she'd fucking know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> what? Like roll call. I left Monique. Fuck. No, I did a head count. No. <laughs> Kim was a little shaken up after this realization because she was absolutely certain she'd seen her daughter walk through the house earlier. And if it hadn't been her, she had no explanation for who or what she'd seen. And according to Kim, their family didn't believe in the supernatural. They believed in scientific explanations, that science would eventually figure everything out. But she couldn't think of a single rational explanation for why she'd seen Tana walking through the house when in reality, she'd been miles away at school. That night, Jordan and Tana got ready for bed and went into their separate bedrooms. It was pretty late, and Jordan was on the verge of falling asleep, but said she wasn't actually asleep yet when she saw Tana come into her room. Even though it was dark, she said it was clearly her sister. In typical sibling fashion, Jordan asked her what she was doing and told her to get out of her room. But Tana, <laughs> which... I get it. You get it. I can't. I have no I mean, idea yeah. what this is like. Only child syndrome. But that was even like when you said that the sister like vouched for, for Tana, that she was at school. It's like, your sibling is not going to vouch for you. They're going to fucking throw you under the bus. Any like, fucking yeah. chance they get. They're like, um, <laughs> you like race home and you're like, guess who wasn't in school today? Like, yeah, like, <laughs> like siblings are the narc. fucking Get worst. out of here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They do anything to fucking rat you out. I mean, maybe other siblings don't, but like. I was like, unless you're in cahoots and you both miss school and you're covering exactly. together, then no, no, no. Exactly. That's it's the only game. way your siblings are, or you're getting some like really good shit for it. Being like, yeah. you fucking owe me big. You know, she's not going to fucking vouch for her sister if she wasn't there. No. So Jordan asks her what she's doing, tells her to get out of her room, but Tana didn't respond, which Jordan thought was odd. And as she continued to look at her, she started to feel like something was off. She noticed that although it looked exactly like her sister, her hair was hanging in her face and she couldn't see her eyes. No, thank you. No, thank nope. you. See, I would be like, fuck you. You're trying to scare me. You're a piece of shit. Go the fuck back to your room. <laughs> throw a pillow at you get the fuck out yeah absolutely be like fuck you no and you do that because you're like terrified yes <laughs> scaring you. you're like you don't scare me fuck you then without saying a word tana turned and walked away but jordan said her walk looked quote-unquote funny mm -mm. the next day jordan confronted tana about her late night visit but Tana denied coming into her room the night before. Jordan was a little taken aback because, quote, I know what I saw, end quote. She told Tana that she'd watched her walk purposefully into the room, 
then right back out and insisted that what she'd seen had been solid and looked exactly like her. If it hadn't been for their mother's experience the day before, Tana's late night visit could easily be chalked up to sleepwalking, which would explain why she hadn't spoken and her walk seemed funny. After they told Kim what had happened, and Tana once again insisted that it hadn't been her that they had seen, the three of them agreed that something was going on. But again, none of them had an explanation. Determined to figure out what was happening, Jordan started doing some research online and decided to reach out to a paranormal researcher named Chris McDonald to see if he had any advice. Oh, wow. So they go straight to it. They do, but it doesn't seem like it went anywhere they don't really get into this part okay which i will address momentarily okay through him they were introduced to the concept of doppelgangers now because you monique did a fabulous deep dive on doppelgangers in one of our earlier episodes i'm not really going to go into them but just as a refresher doppelganger a german word meaning double walker is an identical lookalike or double of a living person they are usually seen as either an omen of bad luck or believed to be an evil twin. And if you listen to Monique's story about doppelgangers, then you know that statistically, doppelgangers are far more common than most people think. And there have been many stories over the years of people encountering a double of themselves or someone they know. And as in the case of Abraham Lincoln, who saw his doppelganger in the mirror shortly before he was assassinated, it doesn't always end well for the real person. Yep. If you'd like to hear more about doppelgangers, check out episode 15. Oh, my which God. I know. I didn't realize it was Fuck. that far back either. Yes. Of the podcast titled, This is How I Entertain Myself. <laughs> Another possibility that I considered was that it could be whatever the Florida version of a skinwalker is. Oh. But since from my research, it seems like skinwalkers need to be invited into your house. I mm, don't yes. think that's what it was. Yeah. Which is why they use the trickery and shit. So you'd be like, oh, yeah, come on in. And you're like, ha bitch, I'm here now. Yep. I'm your grandpa. Don't worry about it. Just let me in the fucking house. Yeah. Now back to the story. So although the paranormal researcher was interviewed on the show, he just spoke about doppelgangers in general. And there was no information on whether he did any sort of investigation of the Leggett family or of their home. Or even if he offered them any advice about how to deal with one, if that's what it was. Yeah, just that conversation is like, sucks to be you, brah. <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> After finding out about the idea of doppelgangers and the sinister things that have happened when they appeared, the Leggetts were understandably freaked out and started to worry that this doppelganger was somehow trying to kill Tana and take her place. Oh, my God. Yes. That is not where I would have gone with it, but okay. No. Which, it's hitting me now. I feel like I've been saying her name Tana this whole time, but it's Tana. Oh, okay. Sorry. That's my fuck up. It was one of those things where the narrator said it, Tana, and then they all said it, Tana, and now it's just, it, it's fucked up in my brain. Well, I think the family, whoever the family they know, says but I, They know, I'm, they named her. I'm fucking it up. I can't remember how I've said it. I'm sorry if I'm fucking it up. Tana. <laughs> Tana, great. From henceforth, she shall be known <laughs> shall as be Tana. Tana. <laughs> Tana was convinced that if she somehow saw its face, then that would be the end for her. She was concerned and knew she needed to stay protected, but had no idea what to do. A few months later, Tana moved away to college. With her now out of the house, and after weeks went by without another sighting, the family thought their encounters with her strange doppelganger were over. 
Then one afternoon, while Kim was at home, resting on the couch, the front door suddenly banged open. Kim saw Tana come rushing through the front door and knew that something must be wrong. She immediately asked her daughter what was going on and if she was okay, but Tana didn't respond. She just began walking further into the house, completely silent. Concerned, Kim started to follow her. But as she did, she noticed there was something weird about the way Tana was moving. She was walking too fast, and there was something just off about her movement. Kim said, quote, As a mother, you know everything about your children, their walk, their mannerisms. And I knew immediately, that's not Tana. Can't be Tana. End quote. It moved through the house like it was looking for something. Then it spoke and called out for Tana. Then it just vanished. Kim couldn't believe what she'd seen. Not only had it disappeared before her very eyes, but this was the first time she had seen it do anything physical, and she was disturbed by the fact that it had been able to force the door open. It was clear that not only could this thing that looked like her daughter speak, it was able to manipulate and interact with things in the physical world, which meant there was no telling what it was capable of. Kim said she didn't know if she should feel unsafe or what to feel exactly. She just knew that this thing was back and that it was trying to find her daughter. For the first time since she started encountering the doppelganger, she was truly scared. Now, unfortunately, most of the next part of the story was mostly shown through the reenactment, and Tana didn't give a lot of detail about what exactly happened in her interview, but she said this occurred while she was working at a pizza restaurant as the opening manager which meant that she had to come into the store before anyone else. One morning, she was in the restaurant alone, setting up and getting everything ready. Since the other employees wouldn't come in till the store was actually open, she knew there was no one else there at that time but her. From the reenactment, it seems like things seemed off, that things had been moved or taken out that she hadn't touched. That is such a mindfuck. I know. I can't. No. I start to lose my mind. If I'm like, I know it was here, I left it right fucking here, and it's not. No, I would not handle that well. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. No, absolutely yeah. not. Then, all of a sudden, Tana looked up and finally saw it. Herself. She said it looked exactly like her and that it was even wearing her exact uniform for that day. Tana said it was as solid as she was and she could see it walking past. She had no idea what this thing's intention was, but knew there was no one around to help her if it intended her harm. And she didn't know why she thought this, but she was convinced that if she looked into its eyes, that that would somehow be the death of her. That this thing would kill her and take over her life, and no one would ever know that it wasn't the real her. Not wanting to take that chance, she fled the building and didn't look back. Thoroughly shaken up, Tana immediately called her mom afterwards to tell her that she'd seen it, the doppelganger of herself. And according to Kim, she sounded absolutely terrified. Mm -hmm. Tana said she's afraid it won't stop until it does whatever it needs to do. And Jordan believes that this is going to be with their family forever, that it's going to just appear again and again until it gets what it wants. But says she hopes Tana, quote, never has to see what's behind those eyes, end quote. Oh, my God. It's unclear whether the Leggett family ever saw Tana's doppelganger again. I tried searching for any other reports from either Tana, Jordan, or Kim, but the Monsters and Mysteries episode was the only source that I could find. Interesting to note, though, in Tana's interview, you can see that she's wearing a pentagram necklace, 
And since pentagrams are frequently used as a protection against evil, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. maybe that's why she hasn't encountered her doppelganger again. Regardless, Tana's devil was seen on at least four separate occasions by Kim, Jordan, and Tana herself. Something else I found interesting while I was trying to find more sources for the story, I realized that in Joseph Conrad's short story, The Secret Sharer, which is about a captain of a ship harboring a criminal he repeatedly refers to as his double, the criminal's name is Leggett, which, although it's spelled differently with an A at the end instead of an E, is Tana's family's last name. Oh! I know. It's kind of weird. That just gave me chills. It kind of freaked me out. Which at first made me think maybe they were using a pseudonym, but as far as I can tell, that's not the case. Since I found Tana's Facebook profile, which states that she now lives in Pikesville, Kentucky, attended Oviedo High School, and the University of Central Florida. And I also found phone and address records for a Kim and Jordan Leggett who reside in Oviedo. So it's just a really weird coincidence. And that is the story of Tana Leggett's doppelganger. I love that so fucking much. I did too. I so wish there had been more sources because I needed the story like 14 more times. Like I wanted to know everything. I had so many questions. Yeah. What the fuck? What the fuck? I'm just like stunned. (laughs) It's a speechlessness. Same. Same. No, I heard the story and I was like, oh, I have to do this. I was like, this is so fucking good. And I knew you loved doppelganger stories from your stories. Yes. Because what the fuck? Like, what is that? It's so creepy. And it just didn't seem good. Like, everything they said made it seem like it was just very, very sinister. Yeah. Yeah. Oof. Well, I hope that that's still the case and she hasn't seen any more doppelgangers any wild shit me too i hope it hasn't taken over her life Ah. so that's my little taste of some twilight zone-esque story for you i fucking loved it thank you so much for that amy you're so welcome and go check out episode 15 for monique's story about doppelgangers yeah uh, this happens a lot apparently i mean kind of happened to you a little bit which we get it to in the story. Oh my god, I can't. I, I swear I blocked this memory out <laughs> because I might have destroyed a family. And I didn't have this epiphany until Monique Until I told said me it to her on the air. <laughs> and then I, I had don't a think so. mental breakdown. It was very funny. Uh, I actually had told my dad that story recently because I guess maybe I didn't tell him when it happened or maybe he forgot that yeah, we were talking on the phone and I don't know how it came up, but I told him the story of his doppelganger. He thought it was very funny. <laughs> and I was like, I'm glad you think so. I was genuinely mortified, just physically uncomfortable. And I have never wanted to just sink into the floor and disappear more in my life than I did I mean, in that moment. I get it. But it's oh it's kind of amazing. So listen to episode 15 to find out uh, all about uh, Amy's run-in with her dad's doppelganger. Yes. Question mark? Upwards inflection? and how i may have destroyed a family if we're not sure (laughs) i really hope not you know i on instagram yesterday there there was this i guess it was like uh what was that fucking website that you could like anonymously post shit whisper sure i was like it was like a whisper type of thing and it was like what's the most fucked up thing you've ever done and this guy was like oh when we were like in high school this teacher was a piece of shit 
and like we hated him and he like failed like a lot of the class like he failed like all of us so we created like a fake social media account for him that his wife found and thought that he was cheating and then divorced him and took him for everything and i was like damn fuck yo teenagers are savage they are man don't fuck around with teenagers they Uh, give zero fucks they're like we can't really go to prison so right it's like what am i going to prison for creating a fake you know facebook or instagram no that is wild yeah man that's fucking nuts i love that story though oh my god so good i'm so glad i did too i was very intrigued and very uh disturbed by it for sure all right now speaking of disturbing things you got some upsetting true crime for me it, you said it wasn't gentle january so i'm assuming well, that i'm going I, to i said i didn't want to commit to it i didn't <laughs> okay. want to commit to it because i have commitment okay. problems that's why i don't have any tattoos got it so not dissimilarly to you i came across a story and i loved it and most of the sources that mentioned that would bring it up it was like a page and a half long story and i was like oh, i can't really do that but then luckily my hyperfixation kicked in so it's a 10 page story nailed it yes because i was like wait what does this one thing mean so that my brain understands it so yeah and as a result there's like a 80 sources so <laughs> love it this is too relatable to me right now like i <laughs> i get it i 100 percent. i know it. that's why you're my fucking psychic sister and i fucking love you but i actually really love this story so let's get into it i can't wait sources wikipedia.com crack.com encyclopedia.pub, worldhistory.us, federalreservehistory.org, house.gov. Oh, this .gov and the Federal Reserve? .gov, yes. That's sexy. Those are some sexy sources. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Said by no one uh, before this <laughs> this podcast, this moment. Only me. Only this weirdo. <laughs> I got it. I know. Don't ever change. I adore you. Hellovia.com. BEP.gov, another gov right there, thehustle.co, snopes.com, excerpts from the book Reporting at Wit's End, Tales from the New Yorker by St. Clair McElway, and the podcast Scoundrel, History's Forgotten Villains, which is excellent, by the way. It's mostly narrative form, but it's really excellent and uh, really well-researched, so highly recommend them. I've checked that out. Nice. Yeah, for sure. Emmerich Utner was born in Austria in January of 1876 to a working class family. He was the oldest of four siblings, and as a young child, Emmerich exhibited skills and talents in science. He dreamed of one day becoming a famous inventor and crossing the Atlantic Ocean and moving to the United States, the land that produced some of the most well-known inventors of the day, like Thomas Edison. And on June 21st, 1890, the 14-year-old boy boarded a ship and set off through the choppy seas for New York City and the promise of a better life. His first few years as an immigrant were pretty rough and filled with uncertainty as he struggled to get his career started. But the kind and affable young man didn't let this bring him down, and he eventually found work as a frame gilder at a small print shop in Manhattan. Then one day in 1902, the most beautiful woman he had ever seen walked into his print shop. She was short with blonde hair and sparkling blue eyes, just like him. Her name was Florence Lemaine, and upon seeing her, 
Emmerich was overcome with a sense of warmth and peace, something he had not really felt since Austria. He asked the beauty how he could help her, and she told him that she'd like to buy a frame. And it seems that Florence was picking up whatever sexy vibes Emmerich was putting down, because when he showed her the various options for frames, their hands brushed up against each other, and sparks immediately flew. They started seeing each other, and later that year, married. Oh, this was like a meet-cute. I love it. I know. I love all of this. Please don't tell me he murders her. I'm so upset. I, yeah, I'm going to spoil it. He does not. Okay. You don't know oh, where this is going. I definitely don't. There's no don't. way you know where this is going. No. We're setting all this stuff, the players and everything, right? The couple continue to struggle financially, often being unable to afford electricity. But by all accounts, they absolutely adored each other, and Florence remained incredibly supportive of her husband's dreams. In the evenings, Emmerich stayed up late in the couple's tiny tenement apartment, creating blueprints for designs by candlelight. Designs for inventions he believed would make life better for everyone, just how electricity and automobiles had. While Emmerich never did have that big breakthrough creation, he did come close. In 1905, at the age of 29, Emmerich had an idea for a new kind of camera, which he sent the blueprints for to the Eastern Kodak Company, which was the premier manufacturer in the country. And while the company ultimately felt that Emmerich's device wasn't commercially viable, they were impressed with his design enough that they did write him a letter praising his, quote, extraordinary ingeniousness, end quote. Wow. Good for you, Emmerich. Nice. For sure. Emmerich kept that letter for the rest of his life. It was a prized possession he would often show to friends and family any chance he got. In 1903, Florence gave birth to a son named Walter, and then a daughter whom they also named Florence 15 years later. In the late teens, the couple's financial situation remained the same. It was one thing to live paycheck to paycheck as a young couple, but it was quite another to subject your children to that kind of life. The couple knew that things had to change, so Emmerich decided to put his designs on hold. He quit his job at the print shop and found employment as a maintenance man and superintendent of an apartment building on the Upper East Side. Not only did this career change provide a more steady paycheck for the Utner household, but the job allowed him and his family to live in the basement apartment of the building where he worked rent-free. His maintenance job gave Emmerich the ability to provide for his family. His children were able to go to school and have a better life than he and Florence had had at their age. But Emmerich was in his 40s at this point, and being a super is a physically demanding job. By the time he was done for the day, Emmerich was too physically wiped out to even think about tinkering around on his latest idea. But that didn't make him cynical. He didn't regret his decision, nor did he blame anyone else for his lot in life. If anything, the kind and happy maintenance worker became even more joyous and caring to those around him. And that was Emmerich's life for the next two decades. He lives his life with kindness, love, and compassion, not just for his family, but for everyone he meets, with one tenant describing the Austrian as, quote, a man who brings dignity everywhere he goes, end quote. Throughout the Roaring Twenties, Emmerich and Florence's children grew up, moved out of the house, and started lives of their own. Florence Jr. got married and moved out of the city, while Walter got a job on Long Island? On Long Island. On Long Island, girl. 
something. On Long Island. <laughs> right, full circle. Oh my God, I love it. I didn't even fucking realize that. That's so fucking funny. Hilarious. Psychic sistering myself right here. Fuck. While Emmerich and Florence were, of course, sad to see their children go, they were overwhelmed with pride at who their children turned out to be. As time went on, Emmerich's hair started thinning out, and to steal an incredible line from the Scoundrel podcast, quote, and every passing year finds him another tooth short of a full set, end quote. Oh my God. I know. But he's like, cool. He's like chilling. He's happy. Like, he doesn't have teeth. It's fine. Whatever. Got to love my life. Amazing. Then the Great Depression hits and times are tough. Money doesn't go as far as it once did and everyone in the Manhattan apartment building that Emirate works at struggles. They see friends and tenants alike fall into poverty and destitution. The Utners remain frugal to make do. But even though times are hard, Emmerich and Florence still have each other. Then, on one morning in 1937, Florence woke up with a cough unlike any cough she'd ever had before. Each cough felt like her lungs were on fire. It was dry and rough, sharp and cutting, and would leave her wheezing and short of breath. And it didn't look like it was getting any better. After a week of this, Emmerich, who was now 61, took his beloved wife to a clinic, and the news was not good. The doctor told the couple that whatever Florence had was too advanced, that she didn't have much time left, and that the only thing they could do was make her comfortable. I know. Oh, no. I know. He's going to lose it if the love of his life dies. Like, this man is not going to be in a good place. <sighs> Crimes galore. He has nothing to lose at that point. He's like, fuck it. I'm old. I don't have my lady. Like, zero fucks given. <laughs> We're going to see. A short while later, Florence passed away in the couple's apartment. And Emmerich was there with the love of his life in her final moments, running his fingers through her hair and sharing his favorite memories of the life they built together as she passed. I know. Don't I'm you like dare make me right cry, now. you bitch. Don't like, you I do can't. it. I already have, like, so much drainage coming out of my nose. I don't need it to be from tears. Like, I'm, like, I already feel them, like, welling up in my eyes. My God. This is so sweet. I love it. It is. Yeah, like, he's, like, the sweetest guy ever. She was buried later that week, and even though Emmerich was devastated by the loss of his wife, he goes right back to work. He has to, as the depression shows no signs of letting up which sucks really hard because things were looking up at the beginning of 1937. Gross national product had risen sharply from 1934 to 1936, increasing 14% in 1936 alone. At the start of 1937, things mostly appeared rosy. The country had climbed out of the bottom of the Great Depression in 1933, and between May of 1935 and April of 1937, unemployment had declined by one-third. It appeared that the country had rounded a corner. In the spring of 1937, production, profits, and wages had gone back to their pre-1929 stock market crash numbers. Believing the country was on track to recovery, FDR put in several policies in place in an effort to balance the national budget and curb government spending. But the U.S. economy was still in a fragile state, and in mid-1937, the American economy took a sharp downward turn, causing a recession that lasted 
13 months. Stock prices fell as much as 40%. Industrial production declined to almost 30%. And production of durable goods fell even faster. Manufacturing output fell by 37% from the 1937 peak and was back at 1934 levels. Producers reduced their expenditures on durable goods, inventories declined, and unemployment rates skyrocketed to almost 20%. For perspective, the highest the U.S. unemployment rate ever got during the 2020 pandemic was 14.8%. So, holy fuck. Literally, one-fifth of the country is fucking unemployed. What the fuck? Insane. One-fifth of, like, well, I was going to say adults, but also kids are working at this time, too, because everything's fucking <laughs> terrible. But get back in the factories. Yeah. Girl, those tiny hands. They can do things. <laughs> Girl, I can't. Fuck. So fucked. However, personal income was only 15% lower than it had been at the peak in 1937. In most sectors, hourly earnings continued to rise throughout the recession, partially compensating for the reduction in hours worked. However, as unemployment rose, consumer spending declined, leading to further cutbacks in production. The recession of 1937 to 1938 was the third worst U.S. economic decline in all of the 20th century, after the stock market crash of 1929 and the Great Depression. So it's all pretty much fucking bad. So even though Emmerich is getting older, he continues his maintenance gig, fixing sinks and squeaky door hinges, all the while maintaining his dignity and composure in front of the building's tenants. But at night, the widower mourns in private. He cries and laughs at the various memories he had of his life with Florence. But more than anything, Emmerich feels the sharp pangs of loneliness. His wages didn't increase, and he finds that money doesn't go nearly as far as it once did. The necessities of life, specifically food, become a burden on his income. His pantries go empty as he can't afford to eat like he used to. Not only that, Emmerich is 61 at this point, and he knows that he can't be a maintenance man forever. All the twisting and bending up and down takes a toll on his body. So he builds himself a two-wheeled wooden pushcart that he pushes all over vacant lots and alleyways in Manhattan to dig for anything of value he might be able to find and resell to supplement his income. Emmerich's children at this point are both comfortably middle class, and before you're like, what the fuck were his kids? They are very aware of their father's situation and implore him to come live with one of them, saying that he doesn't have to live like this. But Emmerich hears none of it. He told his children that he came to the United States to make it on his own and that he still intended to do so. Aww. It's like a pride thing, too. And I know. I, yeah. I know. This is so I old get school. It. Yeah. To combat his loneliness, Emmerich got a dog a little terrier who followed him around on his dumpster diving expeditions. Oh my God. This Girl. man <laughs> is like the cutest. I can't. I, I like, why has like Pixar made a movie about this guy? Right? I mean, well, we'll probably get into it. I still, we'll get into it. Okay. <laughs> oh goodness. Okay. We'll get into it. One day in November of 1938, Emmerich and his dog took the cart filled with scraps of aluminum, copper, and brass to the scrapyard to see what they could get for it. And the foreman inspected each piece, ultimately only taking a couple, leaving the majority of the pile with Emmerich. And he offered the old man $1 for his selections. 
Bro. Girl. Oh my God. All that work and scavenging for a dollar? Literally, this is my next line. It's literally my next line. After pushing around this wooden cart and dumpster diving all fucking day, homeboy is literally offering him a dollar. Now, to be fair, at this point, a dollar is worth twenty-one sixty-one in today's money. Okay, but that's still still 21 bucks for a day of fucking work. You put in all that work and literally that's what your day's wages are going to be. Like, what the fuck? That fucking sucks. But, you know, Emmerich knows that beggars can't be choosers. So he accepts the note and walks back to his apartment with his dog and cart. There he examines the fruits of his labor, the crumpled dollar bill. And he knows that he's pretty financially fucked. He needs more money and fast. And that's when it hits him. His bright blue eyes light up. If I want more dollars, why don't I just make more dollars? Yes. I got like weirdly excited about that. I did a little dance and everything. She did do a little dance. It was pretty great. Yeah. It was very great. Yep. Sure, he's not a counterfeiter, but he's made other things, more complicated mechanical things. He made a fucking camera that even Kodak was impressed by. In his youth, he acquired a quote-unquote elementary knowledge of metal graving. And during his time as an inspiring camera inventor, he'd also dabbled in photography. He could definitely make a dollar. The following morning, Emmerich gathered what little money he had left and purchased. I wish you guys could see. I'm like, I'm smiling. I'm like bopping around. Oh yeah. (laughs) I'm so here for this. Like do it. It, Yeah. Yes. (laughs) I support this 100%. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm like, I really hope he doesn't get caught. Like, that's how much I'm into this. He seems like a very sweet man. Fucking go for it. <laughs> I fucking love you. Oh, my God. Emmerich gathered what little money he had left and purchased some stationary paper and zinc plates. When he got home, he pulled a worn camera from the growing scrap pile in his apartment and got to work. He carefully framed the note and adjusted the focus of his camera taking a picture of the front of the bill, then doing the same to the back. Using a homemade acid bath, Emmerich transferred the two images onto a pair of zinc plates, and he carefully filled some of the details in not captured by the camera by hand. An incomplete border, a blurred number, some of the texture on George Washington's face. When the Austrian man was satisfied with his work, he transferred the zinc plates onto a small, hand-driven printing press he kept in his kitchen, and printed several replicas. He hung the counterfeit copies to dry on a clothesline he had threaded across the kitchen. It's a scene right out of Catch Me If You Can, except that Emmerich Utner is no Frank William Abagnale. These bills are bad, like really oh, no. bad, like comically bad. No, really? Oh, I thought they were gonna be good. I thought they were gonna be like badass, be like perfection. Girl. Oh, no. Monopoly money? Shit. No, nah, man. Monopoly money is incredible compared to this. Oh, Girl. fuck. It's bad. <laughs> it's bad. For starters, there's the paper. Emmerich used cheap, flimsy bond paper, the kind you could buy in just about any stationery store in New York. The borders, numerals, and letters of his fake bills were uneven and sloppy. The serial numbers were fuzzy and misaligned. The New Yorker later described the portrait of George Washington as, quote, clumsily retouched, 
murky, and death-like. End quote. Damn. Savage. <laughs> Damn. And worse yet, the first president had black blotches for eyes. <laughs> okay. Oh, no. Oh, Girl. it's so bad. Bro. It was fucking bad. It oh was fucking God. bad. Like, it's like uh, that old... <laughs> skit from SNL where they're drawing the Unabomber and he was like I'm not really good at eyes so he's just wearing sunglasses and I he's I'm not really good at hair so he's got a hood yeah, on I mean, yes yeah basically <laughs> oh, yeah no. oh. but as Emmerich Utner looked at the dupes hanging in his apartment his eyes glistened and he smiled a big toothless grin because to Emmerich these were his masterpiece. Oh, no. Oh, no. Emmerick, no. <laughs> Just uh, try another round. Like, see Girl. see if you can make it better. Girl, let's, <sighs> let's, go on this, let's go on this journey. Come on this journey with me. Let's go. I'm here for it. I'm in the boat. Let's do this. You don't even know how fucking here for it you are, is what I'm going to say. You don't even know. So excited. And so... Emmerich Utner started minting fake U.S. currency out of the kitchen of his apartment at 204 West 96th Street. And here's the thing. It's one thing to make a fake dollar bill, but it's quite another to actually test it out. Because making and spending counterfeit money is a fucking felony that can be punishable for up to 30 years in prison or steep fines, but often both. But Emmerich is down to fuck around and find out. So on the following day, the unassuming 61-year-old decides to test his workout. He goes to a cigar shop on 102nd Street and Broadway and asks for a cigar and a box of matches. He hands the cashier one of his fake dollars and two real dollars. The cashier takes the bills and counts them. And one of the bills feels a bit thin, maybe a little more worn and discolored than the other ones he's used to, but he doesn't question it. He hands Emmerich his change which the Austrian tells the cashier to keep it. The cashier thanks the elderly man, and he's on his way. And Emmerich was kind of shocked, like, oh my God, I fucking got away with it. Later that day, the cashier that Emmerich had given the fake bill to emptied out the day's revenue from the till into a deposit bag that he dropped off at the bank on his way home, never thinking of the old man again. The following morning at the bank, the teller was counting the money from the deposit bag when one bill caught her eye. Not only does it not feel right, the borders aren't even, and some of the numbers on the bill are blurred. It's such a bad fake that she wonders how anyone could have accepted the bill in the first place. She flags the bill as potentially counterfeit and forwards it to the manager, who confirms her suspicions, and forwards the counterfeit dollar to the NYPD, where it lands on the desk of a veteran detective. And as soon as the detective picks up the bogus dollar... The bill is so bad that he thinks that someone at the precinct is playing a prank on him. What? <laughs> like, wow. Yeah, girl. Wow. Yeah. Oh, this is next level. I can't. It's incredible. It's incredible. Everything about this story is fucking incredible, oh top God. to bottom. But as he scans the office, looking for a colleague snickering in the corner and comes up empty, he realizes that no. This is a real counterfeit, and he gets to work, compiling notes on the case before eventually forwarding the fake bill to the Secret Service headquarters in Washington, D.C., where it was dropped on the desk of Frank J. Wilson. Now, 
Wilson's a big fucking deal. He was the chief of the Secret Service, and this was the man who prosecuted Al Capone and was one of the agents who investigated the Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Damn. Like, that's a resume. He's the HBIC. Yeah. For sure. And now he has to work on finding who made this laughably bad dollar bill. He opens a file on the new counterfeit, and in his notes, he writes, quote, This opens your file on this new counterfeit. The counterfeit is printed on one sheet of cheap quality bond paper from crude photo etched plates. The portrait is poorly executed against a black backdrop, which fails to show any line work. The left eye is represented by a black spot. (laughs) (laughs) A heavy line forms the lower lid of the right eye, which is almond shaped. Washington's right shoulder blends with the oval background and is devoid of any shading. Faulty etching gives a soiled appearance to the lower part of Washington's front shirt. Reproduction. (laughs) So Washington has a dirty shirt on top of that. I can't. Washington's like, can you please not post those things? (laughs) It's like, um, could you untag me on this, please? I did not approve of that. It's not a good look. Thanks. I did not approve this. Reproduction of small lettering, particularly the titles, is ineffective, some of the letters being illegible. In the word Washington under the portrait, the letters are misshaped and otherwise crudely outlined. Signed, Frank J. Wilson, Chief Secret Service. End quote. And so case file 880 is officially opened, and the search for the worst counterfeiter in the United States begins. And Rick, on the other hand, is jazzed as fuck. He thinks, hey, this bill worked once. Maybe it'll work again. He tries it out a second time, and the cashier accepts the fake bill without question. He does it a third and a fourth time. Every time he passes one of his counterfeits, it fucking works. Now, you might be asking yourself, what the fuck? Like, how can a bill that is so obviously fake, be accepted by all of these people. Well, unlike most counterfeiters who print out higher denominations of currency, Emmerich was only printing out $1 bills. And realistically, who really looks at a dollar? Even today, security measures like hidden images are found on every bill, including the 5 and the $10 bills, which I didn't actually know prior to working on this story. Except the $1 bill. Not to mention, at the time the story's taking place, 500, 1,000, 5,000, and even $10,000 bills were in circulation and remained in circulation until July 14th, 1969. I fucking know, girl. I know. I did not know that. Me fucking need. I knew that there were higher bills. Yeah. There was a $100,000 bill that existed, but it was only like bank to bank could use it. Like Like the Rockefellers couldn't use it. But there was $10,000 bills that were in circulation until July 14, 1969, when the Department of the Treasury and the Federal Reserve System announced that currency notes in denominations of 500, 1,000, 5,000, and 10,000 would be discontinued immediately due to lack of use. Yeah. Can you imagine losing a $5,000 bill? Would, I was just going to say, like, I've lost a 20 before and been heartbroken. Like, if I lost... Girl. Oh, no. No. So... Even though there's this brutal recession going on, who gives a fuck about a dollar bill? 
And even though Emmerich's scam is working, he makes some steadfast rules. He will only print $1 bills. He will never use more than one of his dupes at a time in a single transaction. And he will never use a counterfeit bill at the same location twice. These rules were established not only to prevent Emmerich from getting caught, but so that nobody he ever gave one of his bills to would ever lose more than a dollar. Aww. He's so sweet. I, I really know. wish these were better. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I feel really bad that they're so terrible. I mean, it's endearing. It's He's very, like, yeah. Yes. It is endearing. That is the perfect way to put it. Yes. Emmerich didn't want to be too greedy. He just wanted to have enough to pay for food and survive. Within the month, 40 more of these questionable bills used to buy goods at shops all over the city showed up at the crime lab. By mid-1938, the total grew to 585. The Secret Service labeled the mysterious counterfeiter Mr. 880 after his case file number. And the case ultimately found its way to the desk of James J. Maloney, the supervising agent of the New York field office of the Secret Service. Under his tutelage, the Secret Service had seized millions in counterfeit bills, often before the fake currency even had a chance to go into circulation. But Mr. 880 was different. So there's usually only two kinds of counterfeiters. There are individuals who work on their own. They counterfeit large bills, 100s and up, and they usually try to hit big ones and then they disappear. And then there's the mass producers. They usually work for the mob or some other criminal underground network. They counterfeit fives, tens, and twenties at a large scale to keep the money moving through criminal networks. And from the get, Maloney is stumped. None of this makes any sense because the downfall of most counterfeiters is greed. And again, who gives a fuck about one dollar? Not only that, at the time, replicating the look and feel of U.S. currency was considered an expensive and extremely difficult craft, usually reserved for criminal cartels with deep pockets. It was a technical process that involved masterful artistry and specialized tools. So after receiving a few more of these matching bills, Maloney called for reinforcements. The agent brought in several former counterfeiters to take a look at and amass the forgeries. One of these was a reformed ex-con from Brooklyn who had once done forgeries for the mob. And as soon as Maloney handed him one of the bills, the man guffawed. <laughs> and Love that word, first of all. Oh, absolutely. And asked the agent if they were yanking his chain. But to Maloney, this was no laughing manner. And he asked the Brooklyn counterfeiter if he had come across anything like this on the street. To which the man replied, quote, I've never seen such a botched job in my life. Whoever made this needs to learn some pride. And quote. Oh, poor Emmerich. The burns are nonstop in this oh, fucking story. I mean, incredible. Oh my God. So good. Incredible. Whenever they try to come up with a psychological profile for Mr. 880, they come up at a loss. The motivations just don't make any sense. Because even though Mr. 880 has used 585 fake bills over the span of a year, but it's actually less than $2 a day, which Maloney correctly reasons is an awful lot of work for basically an insignificant amount of money. He's spending like between like $12 and $15 a day, like a week. 
to make these. Okay. Yeah. So like, it seems like a lot. Is he even breaking even? I mean, he's like, he's fine. He seems fine. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd think that after forging $585 bills that Emmerich would have gotten better at counterfeiting. But if you can believe it, he actually got worse. How? How, Monique? Tell me. I'm going to tell you. I cannot. (laughs) I can't. I can't wait. One morning in 1938, Agent Maloney showed up to work to find another fake bill on his desk. It had the classic hallmarks of a Mr. 880 original. Flurry numbers, shoddy borders, black holes where George Washington's eyes should be. (laughs) Poor George. Poor George. Hasn't he been through enough? (laughs) But this time, Maloney noticed something different. And I have no clue how this is even possible. But Emmerich Utner somehow managed to misspell Washington on the forged bill. Instead of Washington, the bill read Washington. No. W-A-H-S-I-N-G-T-O-N. No. Monique. How? Girl, I can't. Literally I can't. how? <sighs> I can't. The bill was so bad that at this point, Maloney was certain that they were being fucked with. The Secret Service was convinced that these forgeries were the work of a more sophisticated counterfeiter who was deliberately mocking the United States with such a laughably offensive product. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Because it literally doesn't make sense otherwise. It's like the in Dumb and Dumber where they're like, wow, you know. Gas man's like, how do they know that we have gas? These guys are good. They're professionals. And it's just like fuck up after fuck up. Like, that's just what this is. I'm just, I'm speechless. This is amazing. It's incredible. And so ridiculous. It's incredible. And I love it so much. It's incredible. Top to bottom. How do you misspell Washington? Like, I <laughs> to be fair, he's Austrian. So, I mean, uh, that's I don't know. True. Okay. Okay. But he does have like, he's taking pictures of the, I don't know. Of the I don't, real I think dollar maybe, bills. Yes. I think that maybe like when it transferred, it was blurry and he like filled it in. And that's how he like mixed up the let girl. I can't. I can't. My head is in my hands. I just am, I just am speechless. Investigators set up a map of the East Coast in their office, marking each $1 counterfeit location with a red thumbtack. While some of the bills show up in places like Baltimore and Richmond, almost all of the tacks end up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan so they know that their forger is local. The Secret Service agents made detailed pamphlets on the forged dollar bills that were circulating around Manhattan. They included explicit instructions and descriptions of the fakes and how to recognize them. They hit just about every corner store in Manhattan, with Secret Service agents posting the pamphlets at the tills, on the windows, and on the entrances to the stores, handing out a total of 200,000 of these warning placards to some 10,000 stores, with Maloney imploring every clerk and store owner to just pay a little bit more attention and stay vigilant. Like, look for Washington's black eyes. Like, what? Literally, the black dead eyes of the first president (laughs) staring into your soul on stationary paper. Oh, my gosh. Maloney tracked down dozens of people who had spent the counterfeit bills, and yet the mystery forger continued to elude the authorities for 10 years. No. No. Girl. Yes. It's incredible. 
this man weirdly brilliant like he's like mr magoo he's like failing upwards yes oh oh girl i love it by 1948, the Secret Service had documented some 7,000 of the distinctly terrible fake $1 bills. Adjusted for inflation, that's over $151,000 that he's just counterfeited and gotten away with. Good for him. You know, kind of. Meaning that Emmerich Utner's shoddy $1 bills accounted for nearly 5% of all the fake currency estimated to be in circulation in the United States, making the affable Austrian one of the most successful counterfeiters of all time. Successful relatively. Like <laughs> He's getting away with it, though. He's getting away with it. He's made bank, apparently. He's not even, like, living like a cucumber. He's literally just to, like, pay for bread and shit. That's why. He didn't get greedy. Because if something's five bucks... Yeah. Four of the dollars are real, and one of them will be a counterfeit. It's literally just to get by. So he's not like li- he's not like living like a fucking like cartel like no. Colombian drug lord life with a fucking like you know helicopter pad and shit. He's still living in the fucking like apart the same apartment like you know with his like fucking dog and having like milk and shit. That's like you know it's girl. It's fucking nuts. This man is kind of brilliant, and I I'm so here for all of this. I mean, is he kind of my hero? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Not only that, the search for Mr. 880 turned into the largest and most expensive counterfeit investigation in Secret Service history, meaning more expensive than Catch Me If You Can, which also may or may not be real. That There's a whole thing on that. That's insane. Yes. Maloney, who was no longer on the case, mostly his the sake of his own sanity, had eventually <laughs> been promoted. Yep. Because he was like, this case like felt personal and that it like, dogged him yeah you're like this guy is so bad at this and yet somehow i still can't figure out who the fuck he is like that would drive me insane and he's clearly like in the upper west side maloney had also been promoted to chief of the secret service in washington dc at this point the secret service chief was convinced that mr 880 would never be caught and that the unsolved case would surely go down as one of his and the Secret Service's greatest embarrassments. Then one morning in the winter of 1948, while Utner was running an errand at the corner store, his apartment caught fire. A rat had chewed through some wires, setting the place ablaze. By the time Emmerich returned to his apartment, firemen were already on the scene, breaking glass and tossing out as much junk and scrap from the unit out of the window as possible to make room to work and remove any more potential kindling and accelerant to get this fire under control. While the firefighters were able to successfully extinguish the blaze, most of Utner's possessions were gone. And just like that, his counterfeiting operation was over. Several days later, on a chilly January afternoon in 1948, Seven schoolboys were playing in a vacant lot in the Upper West Side. It had recently snowed, and while the boys scooped up the snow to make snowballs, they came across a pile of junk and scrap. Buried under the fresh white layer, among the pile of car tires, old bird cages, and a rusty bird carriage, the boys found two zinc engraving plates and, quote, 30 funny-looking dollar bills, end quote. Now, even the children can tell these are bad. 
Amy, I fucking love you so much because literally this is the next fucking line. Now, I would just like to remind everyone that literally thousands of adults in New York City were duped by these phony bills for a decade, whereas this group of 12-year-olds immediately clocked them as fakes. <laughs> immediately. Oh, my God. I, just, I love it so much. I believe the children yeah. are the future. Like, they know what the up. fuck? They know what the fuck's up. The boys took whatever souvenirs they wanted from the pile, including the funny money. And a week later, one boy's father caught him playing poker with a strange bill and turned it into the police. And also, like, it would not occur to me to take this to the police at all. I would just be like, throw it out. Like, yeah, same. You know, I'd be like, what, what are you doing with this? Get rid of this. So he turned it into the police who handed it over to the Secret Service. After some investigative work, authorities were able to track down the zinc plates to a 10-year-old named John Canning, who'd acquired the plates after trading a Japanese bayonet for them. Why did a 10-year-old have a fucking Japanese bayonet in his possession? I don't know, probably because, you know, the 40s were fucking wild, whatever fucking time period we're in. This is fucking crazy. I mean, Johnny had a samurai sword, a teenager, and he accidentally stabbed himself in the foot with it. <laughs> so, <laughs> of course he did. No further questions. This seems totally normal. There you go. Like, of course. Of course. Your Honor, the case rests. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Upon examination, the Secret Service agents determined that the plates were the work of their mystery man, Mr. 880. The police got to work on finding out who this stuff belonged to. And that's when the building manager of Emmerich's apartment informed the NYPD that the junk from the pile where the boys had found the plates and the counterfeit money had been thrown from the apartment of one of his tenants during a recent fire. That tenant was Emmerich Utner. And for the first time in a decade, Mr. 880 had a name. Two days later, Secret Service agents busted into the brownstone expecting to find a criminal mastermind. Instead, they were greeted by a jovial, toothless, 5'3", 73-year-old junk collector named Emmerich Utner, who seemed rather unfazed and endearingly aloof of the whole situation. When answering questions, he'd pause and flash a toothless grin, then nonchalantly admitted to his crimes. The Secret Service asked, How long have you been making these bills? Oh, nine or ten years. Long time. You admit it? Of course I admit it. There were only one dollar bills. I never gave more than one of them to any one person, so nobody ever lost more than one dollar. Like, so sweet. I just can't. I know. Homeboy wasn't trying to hide this at all. And when authorities... <laughs> when authorities searched the apartment, they found printing press ink, photo negatives, and a drawer full of phony $1 bills that hadn't met Emmerich's standard. Because apparently, Emmerich Utner created bills that were somehow worse than the Washington bills. How? How? A girl, I don't even know. I literally don't even know. His whole face is just a splotch. He's just a black splotch. Girl, I literally don't even know. I don't know how it's possible. Emmerich was arrested and taken downtown. On September 3rd, 1948, Emmerich's case came before Judge John W. Clancy 
in the U.S. District Court in New York City. He faced three counts, possession of counterfeit plates, the passage of counterfeit bills, and the manufacturing of said bills. Each of these counts came with a possible 10-year sentence, meaning if Eutner were given the maximum sentence, he would spend the rest of his life behind bars. It was a speedy trial as the government had overwhelming evidence against the 73-year-old, so Eutner's guilt wasn't really up for discussion. Throughout the proceedings, Emmerich, dressed in a frayed gray suit with a blue linen shirt and a wrinkled felt hat, sat quietly, occasionally smiling at the court stenographer. At sentencing, the judge addressed Emmerich directly, saying, Herr Eutner, I'm going to send you to jail. Have no doubts about that. What you've done is wrong, indisputably. You will receive a punishment for your actions. In light of your age, however, the sentence will be light. Your punishment will be nine months in prison. End quote. Emmerich's attorney asked to approach the bench, and the prosecutor joined him. The defense attorney thanked the judge for his kind sentence, but informed the judge that under New York state law, if someone is sentenced to one year and one day, they have the possibility of being released after only four months for good behavior. However, if the judge were to stick to the nine-month sentence, his client would be required to serve it in its entirety. The judge asked the prosecutor if he objected to this, which he didn't, and in yet another act of compassion, Judge Clancy resentenced Emmerich Eutner to one year and one day in the New York State Penitentiary and was ordered to pay a fine of one real dollar. Oh, that gave me chills. I don't know why, but like. Literally same. Literally same. I got chills too. And I'm like, really I'm so cute. lame, but I know it's so cute. Okay. We're lame together. I love it. I love it. And with that, Emmerich Eutner was taken away. He served his time without incident and, as promised, was released after four months for good behavior. In 1949, American journalist St. Clair McElway wrote a three-part series for The New Yorker about Emmerich Eutner's life and crimes. The story was later turned into a book, Annals of Crime, which included several other crime features written by McElway. And it wasn't long before Hollywood came knocking. Emmerich sold his life rights, and in 1950, Mr. 880 was made. The comedy drama starred Burt Lancaster as the Secret Service agent in charge of the investigation, and Edmund Gwynn played the character based on Eutner. Emmerich Eutner attended the premiere of the film, and if you think this was some bullshit, straight-to-DVD 1950s equivalent, think the fuck again. Edmund Gwynn won a fucking Golden Globe Award for his portrayal, and was nominated for an Academy Award for his performance in Mr. 880. Damn! Girl. Despite the fact that James Maloney blamed Emmerich for the rise in counterfeiting incidents in the United States, Emmerich Eutner made more money from the release of Mr. 880 than he ever made counterfeiting. Yay! So it was worth it. It was a return on investment. Great. Girl. Totally. Emmerich returned to a life of normalcy and lived out the rest of his days in the suburbs of Long Island. I'm going to be so, like, hung up on this forever. <laughs> Where he died in 1955 at the age of 79. Years before his death, however, a reporter at the New York Daily News recognized Emmerich on the street. 
and asked him if he ever thought about going back to his life of crime. Emmerich flashed the reporter a toothless grin and said, quote, no, there wasn't enough money in it, end quote. And that is the story of Emmerich Utner, a.k.a. Mr. 880, the worst counterfeiter in U.S. history who also happened to be one of the most successful. I am beaming. I'm <laughs> giddy. I loved that so, so much. Pixar, get on it. I want this fucking movie right now. I would watch that in a heartbeat. Yes. In a second. <gasps> that was so funny and just so, so lovely. That was such a sweet true crime story. I loved it so much. Right? I've been feeling like shit. So I was like, I don't want to. And I've been watching terrible documentaries. And I was like, I don't. I want to do something a little light. And I was like, this is incredible. Everything about this is incredible. It is incredible. My cheeks hurt from smiling so much, actually. (laughs) I love that so, so much. I can't even express to you how much I love that. I'm so glad. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for that story. I needed a comic relief story. Little break from all the death and murder and assault. Absolutely. My pleasure. That was so lovely. It was so fun. Fucking my hero, man. Seriously. What the fuck? Yes. Crime does pay. Uh, it doesn't. I didn't say that, but a little bit. That's kind of like Frank William Abagnale. Like, again, there's like whether or not what he did is actually real. He got a movie about his life where Leo DiCaprio fucking plays him. Yeah. And had the audacity to be like, I don't know if Leo DiCaprio is uh, charming or suave enough. He literally said that in the casting. Wow. And then got a fucking Broadway musical made about the movie with Norbert Leo Butts, who's like a fucking Broadway icon. Insane. Crime does pay. Yeah, sometimes. But you sell your life rights. Yeah. Sell your life rights. Yeah. I guess. I guess that's the key. Yeah. And you only get four months in prison? Fucking do it. Go for it. You get four months in prison for stealing the equivalent of $151,000 because you're cute and old yeah, and adorable. I think you ju- you just like just be a nice person. I think is really what it is. Yeah. And just like he, he admitted to it right away. He had rules. But he never made anyone lose more than a dollar. Like, like how cute so is that? Sweet. And like, even though the scoundrel podcast says that he denied it, the New Yorker articles and like the book and all that, it was like, no, he like, he wasn't even trying to hide it. Like he immediately was like, yep, yeah, that was me. Mm-hmm. Yep. Totally. That tracks for his character. I feel like. I think so too. Like he's like a good dude. Like yeah. he wasn't like trying to scam anyone who's literally just trying to get some fucking bread and shit and kibble for his dog so cute i love that so much thank you again for that story for sure of course i loved your story fuck florida doppelgangers doppelgangers and counterfeiters oh my (laughs) what's not to love i mean for sure it's great for sure knocks it out of the park and thank you guys so much for listening this is another fucking horror podcast i'm monique sanchez and i'm amy Traden. You can find me on the gram at pinupgirlmo. You can find me at lobotomy, and that's lobot period Amy. Follow the show on the gram at another fucking horror podcast. Every six episodes, we do a true listener tales episode where we read you your true crazy stories, and we have one coming up. So if you have one or you just want to say hi, email us at another fucking horror podcast at gmail.com with a period instead of the you and fucking. And if you like the show, tell a friend, tell two friends. Leave us a review. The more reviews we get, the more visibility we get. And then hopefully that means we get to do this full time sooner rather than later. 
Guys, thanks so much. We're so obsessed with you. Stay warm out there. And always remember to keep it cute. Keep it creepy. Bye. Bye.